Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move, as always, and good to have you with us this Monday. And unfortunately, it's a somber start to the week as we monitor the rising death toll in one of South Korea's worst ever disasters, a crowd surge that resulted in more than 150 people killed and more than 130 injured, most of them young people out celebrating in a Halloween street festival. A week-long period of mourning has begun across the country, and we will have the very latest on that. We'll also take you to Brazil, too, and the historic political comeback for President-elect Lula da Silva. Lula winning what can only be called a photo-finish victory against incumbent Jair Bolsonaro, who is yet to concede defeat or say that he respects the election results. We've got expert analysis ahead from Alberto Ramos, the head of Latin America Economic Research at Goldman Sachs. Now, for now, Brazil, not the only focus as Eurozone inflation hit record highs this month. Plus, as you can see in front of you, U.S. stock market futures are weaker, with big tech names set to extend last week's losses. The picture outside of Techland, however, looking a bit brighter. The Dow soaring almost 6% last week and on track for its best monthly gains since the mid-70s. Look at that downdraft, though, in September. Also today, fresh losses in China's stock markets. The Hang Seng dropping more than 1% down 14%, in fact, for all of October to its biggest monthly loss in well over a decade. The catalyst today, Chinese factory activity contracting this month due to ongoing COVID curbs, despite hopes for more resilience. And for now, we're going to stay in Asia and the latest on the unfathomable disaster in South Korea. Ivan Watson joins us now from Seoul. Ivan, it's, it's tough to find words to describe what happened here. What more do we know and, and where were the authorities that should have been doing some kind of crowd control, surely? Well, they were not doing a lot of that. There were a lot of people here partying in this neighborhood, this nightlife district of Seoul. Uh, the government has declared a week of national mourning, and, and you can see how people have been paying their respects here at this makeshift memorial, uh, just steps away from where the terrible tragedy took place about 48 hours ago, really, uh, Saturday night. Uh, it was a, a party night here in Seoul's Itaewon district, uh, where you have these kind of narrow alleyways and roads lined with bars and clubs. Lots of young people, thousands of them, some in costume, out for a night out, drinking. Uh, and I've spoken with some of the survivors who say that, that the crowds were getting uncomfortably uh, uh, packed in, cheek to jowl, uh, just around the corner from where I'm standing right now. They were joking about uh, how crowded it was initially, and then uh, it started getting increasingly scary. And I spoke to two uh, young French exchange students, one of whom said she passed out twice uh, in the, uh, the, the crowd surge that took place there. Take a listen. There were like so many people who were like pushing us and like 
we cannot breathe at all for a moment. At some point I had no air and I w we were so crushed to other people that uh, I couldn't breathe at all so I just passed pass out. Unconscious? Yeah, unconscious. Did you know that people were dying near where you no, were standing? No, 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 no. no, no. We, like, we were just there and we're just trying to, to save our life. The Korean authorities say this was an unprecedented gathering, that they don't have a guidebook or a manual for a, a gathering like this without a single organizer, like, say, a concert or a sports event. They say they had more police than in past years during the Halloween weekend, but their primary goal was drug enforcement and preventing sexual abuse and assault. They clearly didn't have enough people to manage the thousands of young people among the youngest victims of the 154 dead, a middle school student. Julia. Just a heartbreaking tragedy for all involved. Ivan Watson, thank you so much for that. Okay, to India now, and a desperate search for survivors underway after a century-old bridge collapsed. At least 130 people, including many children, died when the cable suspension bridge gave way. Christy Lustout has all the details. The death toll continues to climb in India after a recently renovated suspension bridge collapsed in the western Indian state of Gujarat on Sunday, killing scores of people, including children. Authorities say 200 people were on the bridge at the time of the collapse. It took place 6.30 p.m. local time in the town of Morbi. And the video, which is circulated widely on social media, is disturbing to watch. You see dozens of people clinging to and climbing up the twisted remains of the bridge to escape the water below. And some are, are clambering up to try to make it to safety. Others managed to swim to shore. And tragically, a number of children are among the victims. Many children were enjoying holidays for Diwali and they came here as tourists. All of them fell on top of one another. The bridge collapsed due to overloading. On Monday, search and recovery teams combed the river to find the missing. Now, the bridge was a popular tourist destination built during British rule in the 19th century. It had been closed for renovations and was only recently reopened to the public. Gujarat has lodged a criminal complaint against the agency that maintained the bridge, and a special investigation team is looking into why the bridge collapsed. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, who is in his home state of Gujarat for a three-day visit, said he was deeply saddened by the tragedy. He also announced compensation for the injured as well as for the families of the victims. Christy Lu Stout, CNN, Hong Kong. To the war in Ukraine now and its impact around the world. Ukraine says around a dozen vessels have left Ukrainian ports today despite Russia suspending a major grain deal over the weekend. An agreement to move the vessels was made by delegations from the UN, Ukraine and Turkey. Moscow once again being accused of weaponizing food as its withdrawal from the grain deal, leaving hundreds of other ships potentially blocked. Turkey's president says it will keep moving forward with what he calls serving humanity. Even if Russia is hesitant about this because they are not given the same opportunities, we will continue our efforts with determination for the service of humanity. Nick Robertson is in Kiev for us now. Nick, I'm assuming now desperate talks behind the scenes to try and hold Russia in this deal. Can you also provide some context on some of the, the, the points that, that Vladimir Putin has made, that his concern is that not enough of this foodstuff, which is clearly far more highly priced than it was pre-invasion, is not getting to the poorer nations that require it? 
Yeah, Putin's been making that point because he wants to emphasize this is not as advertised, that mm. this food aid, this, uh, you know, food is going out to, uh, to third world countries. Of course, that misleads uh, anyone who's listening to him because, of course, it is a shortage of food that's getting out of Ukraine that causes the global food prices to go up, which puts further pressure on those particular uh, third world countries. And it is today that the UN is trying to get 12 ships out, waiting to see what Russia's reaction to that is. And one of those ships is, is on its way to Ethiopia. But I want to bring you more into the situation here in Kiev, where there have been airstrikes on electricity stations today. The mayor says 80% of the city's water has has been cut off. So the city has opened up these standpipes here for people to come out and get their water. So you have many city residents now. The mayor says they're working to get the water back on again uh, over, the, over the coming days. But for the majority of the city's residents now, they have to get their water from dozens upon dozens of these standpipes that are in and around the city. And this is, of course, really I'm sorry, sir, really impacting people's lives. 355,000 homes in the capital today are without electricity. A power generating uh, facility, a hydropower station on the outskirts of the city here targeted. The government says in 10 different regions, 18 critical facilities targeted today. And the, the city's ability to cope, the country's ability to cope, is now more precarious than it was before. We've had, power, we've had hits on the power system here over the past few weeks, but it is now that it's beginning to have that significant impact to cut off water supplies. And as you can see here, um, people literally, for their drinks for dinner tonight, or however they're going to cook their food this evening, they have to come and get their water out in the street. Uh, and this, this is unusual here. This has not been the case since the very beginning of the war. I mean, these two things clearly tied, and there is an irony there that um, President Putin is suggesting that pulling out of this grain deal is to do with what he said were Ukrainian attacks on locations in Crimea, yet at the same time, as, as you're pointing out, once again, overnight attacks on locations in Kyiv and beyond that are targeting critical infrastructure like utility services. Nick, do we have any sense of how long people are going to have to be going to these uh, pipes in the street in order to be able to, to, to get fresh water rather than actually be able to have services in their homes? You know, I think that's a question everyone here would like to uh, like to have answered. Uh, you know, I've spoken to a few people here and one man told me, look, you know, we're expecting this. We're ready to put up with it. Um, the mayor here says that he anticipates things should improve in the coming weeks. But the only person that really has the answer to that question is President Putin in the Kremlin, because it's his military that's bombing the infrastructure here that's cutting off the water supplies, that's damaging the electricity supplies around the country, hitting the heating stations. So, you know, while the residents here say they're ready to put up with this and go on with it, um, Russia has got to the point in its attack of the critical infrastructure here that it, it is the system is in, in a very poor state of repair. So it doesn't take much to tip it out of balance and turn off the water for hundreds of thousands of people. Um, so the Kremlin really has the answer on that question, I believe. Mm, we'll keep asking it. Nick Robertson, thank you so much for being there and sharing that with us. Okay, straight ahead, Lula da Silva's stunning political comeback in Brazil and what it means for the country's economy. Plus, the Twitter turmoil is half and over with its new chief twit in charge. The details on that next.
Welcome back to First Move. The vote may be over, but deep divisions remain after this weekend's presidential election runoff in Brazil. Jair Bolsonaro yet to concede defeat after losing his re-election bid to Lula da Silva by the thinnest of margins. Paula Newton joins us now from Sao Paulo. Paula, great to have you with us. You were saying that this was potential when you were talking to us last week, and it's exactly what we got, a win, but by the narrowest of margins. Do we expect Bolsonaro to come out and concede defeat? You know, at this point, that is what everyone in this country is waiting to see, mm. and that includes both, uh, you know, his detractors and his allies. Think about it, Julio. We are more than 12 hours out to when electoral officials called this election for Lula da Silva, and more than that said that, look, these elections were peaceful and that there was no reason that the results of this election should be challenged uh, in any way. In the meantime, right, Lula, that is absolutely a comeback for the history books. Take a listen. Supporters partied like it was 2003, the last time Luis Inácio Lula da Silva was swept into power and promised to transform Brazil for a new century. He is now pledging to do it again. These women, just babies when Lula was first elected, hail him now as their political savior. So, so, so happy. We couldn't take any more Bolsonaro. We can dream again. Lula cemented an improbable political comeback destined now for the history books. He walked out of prison less than three years ago, appealing corruption convictions. After they were thrown out, he mounted a campaign to defeat conservative populist Jair Bolsonaro. I consider myself a person who's been resurrected in Brazilian politics because they tried to bury me alive and I'm here. A gratified Lula pledged Brazil is back for its citizens and the world. From January 1st, 2023, I will govern for 215 million Brazilians and not just those who voted for me. They are not two Brazils. We are one country, one people, one great nation. Lula supporters flooded the streets of Sao Paulo, relishing a fresh start. Victory uniting this country now will be difficult and quite a challenge for Lula, as he also considers a very determined opposition. Bolsonaro did not formally concede on election night. The last time Brazilians saw their president was when he voted. But even the head of Brazil's Congress, a Bolsonaro ally, allowed Lula supporters their victory, saying Congress accepted the outcome. This Lula supporter says the war, in her words, the culture war that Bolsonaro leaned into, is not over. Look at the amount of votes this man had. Even after everything he's done, almost half of the votes, the difference was really small. This is Lula's victory, but no longer Lula's Brazil. Years of division and political acrimony have taken their toll blindsiding this democracy, and it could yet challenge this president like never before. What is so interesting here as well is what Lula is promising to do economically, right? It has been absolutely stagnant here for almost a decade. Brazil, 10th largest economy. I don't have to remind you, Julia, given its wealth in energy, in minerals, in the agri agriculture business here, 
you know, balanced against the urgency of the climate crisis here, all eyes will be on Lula and what he can manage here in the next few months under such circumstances. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be in many ways fascinating to watch because they are diametrically opposed politically. It's just what, in terms of policy, actually, he can achieve here. It was quite interesting to listen to the people that you spoke to there because they were clearly Lula supporters and particularly for the young people, some great excitement and saying that we couldn't take any more of um, Shah Bolsonaro. Paul, I just wondered if you'd spoken to any Bolsonaro supporters and what they said about accepting Lula and Lula's rule going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd like to put them into two categories. Uh, mm. The Bolsonaro, uh, Bolsonaro supporters and those who believe in him and the brute that they, you know, road that he was taking Brazil on, they are angry and they want these results um, to be looked at again. And they are, some of them, in some cases, even calling for more drastic measures. That's why every hour that goes by that we do not hear from Bolsonaro, Bolsonaro in that vacuum, unfortunately, uh, it, it is a dangerous moment here in Brazil. And so people are watching and waiting. Having said that, his allies, his political and business allies have already come forward and saying that they accept this. And crucially, that includes a lot of local governments, Congress, senators saying we are prepared to work with Lula. Um, we accept these results and we will go forward to basically uh, embolden Brazil when it so badly needs it. But needless to say, this will be an interesting few hours uh, now ahead for Brazil. Everyone watching to see what Bolsonaro's next move will be. Mm. The wait continues. Paula Newton, thank you so much for that. Lula's win, as Paula was saying, comes as Brazil's economy recovers from its worst recession ever, high inflation, the fallout from the pandemic and an ongoing education crisis. In his victory speech, the president-elect said addressing poverty and food security were among his top priorities. Let's discuss this now. We're joining us is Alberto Ramos. He's the head of Latin America Economic Research at Goldman Sachs. Alberto, much to discuss in terms of the direction now that the country, the economy, uh, the social economy goes into. But first and foremost, do you expect challenges over this election win from Bolsonaro's camp? Uh, to be seen, uh, this was the, you know, the thinnest margin of victory mm. in a runoff. The country remains deeply polarized socially and politically. The country is facing very significant economic and fiscal and social challenges. So it's going to be a very difficult you know, policy and governing background that President-elect Lula uh, will face in the coming months. He still has to provide a little bit more clarity on, on the policy mix that he will pursue. It also has to uh, nominate uh, uh, key members of uh, the cabinet, particularly the Minister of Finance, so the market will take the cues from those signals that we expect to hear from the president-elect. And this is going to be crucial, too, because there's going to have to be uh, multi-party coalitions built in order to get a two-thirds qualified majority in order to enact significant policy changes. And, and you can talk us through that. But we are talking about getting support from, from more centrist policy. So in terms of what we have and what we don't have, and there is still, I think, a distinct lack of clarity over particularly economic policy direction, what do you think is achievable of, of what Lula has promised uh, I mean, during campaigns, uh, you know, a number of promises are made, and many of them will prove to be quite expensive from a fiscal st fiscal standpoint. It's a question of electing the right priorities. It's a question of electing, of co-opting the, 
uh, a number of forces in Congress. I think governability will be achieved. I think the president-elect will be able to co-opt a number of centrist parties, even center-right parties, to form a broader coalition to move forward this uh, his policy agenda. Uh, but the main challenge is to deepen the fiscal adjustment. Uh, the fiscal accounts in Brazil are quite fragile, and something that you mentioned a few minutes ago, this has been a long underperforming economy. Social and economic progress has been painfully slow. Uh, if you go back to 2011, since then, we have not seen uh, any increase in per capita real GDP. So this is an economy that has stagnated for more than a dec decade. You know, So the key challenge is to turn around this underperforming economy and unleash the trap potential that still is uh, out there in Brazil. I mean, he did promise tax rises. He also promised a, a whole host of so far unfunded spending uh, commitments as well. I mean, the, the, the sort of counter that you've got to this is that you've got um, the central bank in, in Brazil that has really ramped up interest rates compared to what we had during the pandemic in order to counter high inflation. Actually, I think showing some developed market uh, nations, governments and, and central banks, how it's done in order to get ahead of inflation and not let it get out of control. Is that an effective counterbalance, perhaps, particularly given the environment that we're in, to, to prevent over unfunded spending and perhaps um, prevent, in terms of the checks and balances that we've talked about, in gaining a, a coalition support, particularly if you're talking the centre-right, from extreme tax rises? Uh, certainly, you know, the central bank is a very credible entity and the inflation mm. targeting framework has been very well. This is a central bank that was quite aggressive in pushing rates up. Uh, the monetary stance right now is quite restrictive and the objective is noble. They are trying to bring inflation down. Once they do that, they will be able to start to cut rates. Uh, the question now is uh, the fiscal promises that were made during the campaign, it's most likely uh, not, it will not be possible to uh, to comply with all of, all of them within the bounds of fiscal responsibility. So what we expect is President-elect Lula to pretty much follow a tax and spend strategy, but we'll have to negotiate that with Congress. And I think, you know, Congress probably, because it's leaning more center-right, will provide a little bit of checks and balances on more extreme policies. It's going to be a very hard bargain for the president-elect uh, to extract uh, uh, concessions from Congress in order to increase in a very significant way the tax burden. Also, let's keep in mind that tax burden in Brazil is already extraordinarily high and raising it, you know, beyond already an extraordinarily high level uh, will have implications for growth and investment going forward. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see. I, I, I think one of the other things that, that's concerning for people and outside of Brazil, we, we don't really have a sense of it. Certainly in the United States, post-election here, we've, we've felt it. But you've pulled some of the data as well and highlighted um, the polarisation as it feeds into sort of public perception of, of, of each candidate that, that we had in this election and how it's impacted households, families, relationships. More than one third of voters judge it, quote, unacceptable to vote for the other candidate, would be unhappy if a son or daughter married a supporter of the other candidate. And a significant, we're talking 15% and 9%, Lula and Bolsonaro respectively, supporters report having ended personal relationships because of politics. What does that kind of polarisation mean for a society, particularly in the hours where we're still waiting for, for one candidate to concede. Look, it's a very unhealthy environment. You know, you just mm. mentioned, you know, key statistics, 10 to 15 percent 
uh, of uh, uh, individuals have uh, broken personal relationships, you know, because of differences over politics uh, that could undermine social peace, that could undermine governability. Uh, this is a country that is broken down the middle. The levels of polarization are extremely high. We don't think that polarization will disappear, particularly because Bolsonarismo as a political identity, as a political philosophy, actually gained deeper roots at the local level and also within Congress. You know, President Bolsonaro may leave office at the beginning of, uh, uh, of January, but that idea, that political philosophy is still well alive and therefore, you know, that tension, that political and social tension uh, will be there in the background and can definitely undermine governability as you go forward. Yeah, I think this is something that we we have to keep an eye on. In particular, I mean, one of the other statistics, and then I'll I'll move on. But thirty eight percent and thirty two percent—that's Lula and Bolsonaro supporters specifically—believe that broken relationships because of politics will not be restored after the election. So um, the legacy of this, to, to your point, continues. Um, I think one of the key distinctions, and it's very potent as we head towards COP27, was the, the differing approach to climate change and, and protection of the Amazon as well, the world's largest carbon sink. So it's crucial for that conversation. It's crucial for the leadership in the country too, I think, to, to have taken some form of ownership, particularly among young people. Um, what does Lula's campaigning on a more ESG-friendly platform, I think, mean not only for the country, but, but to investors too. Could that ultimately pay dividends, Alberto, in your mind? Absolutely, no. The environmental issues were a key axis of differentiation between uh, Bolsonaro and Lula. We expect to see a very significant pivot towards more ESG-friendly types of policies and then can unleash uh, significant investment flows into the economy and restore a little bit the leadership that the country uh, should have on those issues in international forum. Yeah, I think perhaps some of the relative warmth of uh, responses from international leaders to this election victory perhaps tells you something um, on that front too. Alberta, great to have you with us. Thank you so much uh, for your context and insight today. Alberta Ramos, Head of Latin America Economic Research at Goldman Sachs. Uh, thank you. OK, still to come here on First Move. Twitter's new owner said he didn't want the platform to become a, quote, hellscape. But Elon Musk is already being called out for spreading further misinformation. The details. Welcome back to First Move and the opening bell sounding on Wall Street this morning and few treats in store for investors this Halloween day. The major average is weaker as investors reassess valuations for tech names in particular that have delivered disappointing results this earnings season. The softer results coming against a backdrop of continued Federal Reserve tightening, never a strong environment, of course, for tech stock performance. The Fed is set to deliver its latest three quarters of a percent rate hike this Wednesday. And grain prices also in focus. Wheat futures up more than 5% after Russia's sudden withdrawal from the Black Sea grain export deal. Corn prices also significantly higher too. And tricks and no treats in the oil patch also. Both Brent and U.S. crude down by more than 1% as disappointing Chinese economic data fuels concern over weaker demand. New numbers showing Chinese factory activity contracting this month amid ongoing COVID restrictions. 
And in the meantime, questions are continuing to swirl about what the future for Twitter looks like under Elon Musk. And it seems how getting that all-important blue check mark is on his to-do list. In response to a photographer on Sunday, the billionaire tweeted, the whole verification process is being revamped right now. Oliver Darcy joins us now with more on all of this. I have to say, it was a very busy weekend all round for, for Elon Musk and Twitter and Twitter uh, viewers, I think, itself. Let's talk about the verification, the tick mark, what it requires currently and what it might require in the future. It could tie to content moderation. It could also tie, crucially, I think, to monetization as well. Yeah. Right now, currently, Twitter um, verifies public individuals who they think that the user base might want to know is real. So I think you have a verification mark. I have a verification mark. A lot of celebrities do. Public institutions like local police departments, they're all verified. That way, people, when they're on the platform, they know that this is an authentic account. What Elon Musk is reportedly uh, proposing, and this is according to The Verge, is charging $20 a month for this verification. It would be for Twitter Blue, which is the premium service that would up the price of $20 a month and it would include in verification. According to those same reports, though, the people who are already verified uh, will then have to subscribe to this within 90 days or they'll lose their verification badge, that blue badge. Um, I think this does raise a host of questions about being able to clean up the platform. You know, Elon Musk has talked about how he doesn't want this platform to be a hellscape. But when you don't know what's authentic and what's not, I think that makes it a little trickier for users to uh, be able to trust the information that they're seeing on the platform. Uh, It's still unclear, I think, the details. And he hasn't really commented on this other than saying that he is revamping the verification process. So hopefully at least, you know, government agencies like those local police departments will at least retain their blue badges. That way, during uh, instances of public emergency, you know, think like hurricanes coming and a police department tweeting to evacuate, that people can count on that information being true and the other imposter accounts don't spread mayhem. Uh, But it's all up in the air right now. And so we'll, we'll really see what's going on in the next few days, I think. Yeah, whatever you do creates a whole new set of challenges, I think. Authenticity, perhaps in that case, guaranteed. Quality control, mm-hmm. um, perhaps not. But to your point as well, perhaps the uh, the algorithm can be tweaked as well to amplify those that they believe are verified. But, but sometimes that can also uh, amplify um, extremism and fallacy as well. And um, on that point... Obviously, news that we saw uh, over the weekend was the attack on the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, um, Paul Pelosi. And obviously, it was reported widely across the media. Elon Musk himself then retweeted an article from a, uh, a website that in the past has made questionable accusations. It suggested Hillary Clinton, I believe, at uh, one point had, had died. Of course, she hadn't. Um, mm-hmm. Raising more questions. Oliver, what do we make of this one? Yeah, well, this is, I think, a reason why you want to make sure that information is verified. And so it's a little strange, I think, to de-verify everyone. You've already gone through the process of verifying. But I think this does speak uh, to a larger problem within the Republican Party and more broadly in our information environment, where conspiracy theories like this, fringe ideas, can gain foothold very quickly inside the Republican Party and the broader U.S. uh, public conversation. So Paul Pelosi, we know, was attacked. Uh, Those reports came out on Friday. And by Sunday, you have someone like Elon Musk, who is a very smart person, 
giving credence to this idea, uh, it just shows how broken I think our information environment really is. And frankly, some, like Elon Musk, who is the head of Twitter now, uh, plays a key role, and he, he should be working to clean this information environment up, not uh, contributing to the contamination. Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, if we just yeah. keep politics out of it, I think it's okay to question content. It's okay to question what we're being told and by whom and, and by raising that point. Uh, and he does continue to because we know he doesn't trust mainstream media, I think, for, for the most part. But mm-hmm. um, again, I think he perhaps illustrated the challenges more than um, a solution at this stage, to your point, Oliver. Great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, and CNN has in exclusive more details about that assault on Paul Pelosi, the husband of U.S. Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. Our Veronica Miracle is following this story from San Francisco, where the attack occurred inside the couple's home on Friday. Sources familiar with this incident say the suspect brought the hammer that was used in this attack in addition to the duct tape and the zip ties. We're also told by the district attorney's office that the suspect went upstairs into Paul Pelosi's bedroom where he was sleeping. Now, Paul Pelosi is still recovering in the hospital. He suffered a skull fracture and injuries to his hands and arm when he was hit with that hammer. It's without a doubt a difficult time for Speaker Pelosi, who is now back in San Francisco. We did see her leave her residence. She ducked into her motorcade out of her garage, and she did not stop to talk to the media, but she did send a letter to her colleagues in the House of Representatives, emphasizing the grief her family is experiencing right now, saying our children, our grandchildren, and I are heartbroken and traumatized by the life-threatening attack on our pop. Congressman Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader of the House, who is also a representative from California was on Fox News, putting aside all differences and condemning the attack, expressing his support for the Pelosi family. Well, let me be perfectly clear. Violence or threat of violence has no place in our society. And what happened to Paul Pelosi is wrong. Um, Having heard it, I reached out and called uh, the speaker. Uh, She was on a plane back for her husband, but so we were able to communicate by text. She did say that the surgery went well. I wanted to convey that our thoughts and prayers were with her and her family and with Paul, and we hope for him a speedy recovery and that we're able to stop this crime across our country. The suspect, David DePappi, is expected to be charged Monday with multiple felonies, including attempted homicide and assault with a deadly weapon and elder abuse, among other charges. He is expected to be arraigned in court on Tuesday. Veronica Miracle, CNN, San Francisco. Okay, coming up here on First Move, an unprecedented day of protest across Iran Sunday. University students defying the country's leaders and continuing to demand change. The latest after this. Welcome back to First Move. Another tense weekend of protests in Iran. Activist and human rights groups say violent clashes broke out Sunday between security forces and students continuing to demand change. Protesters defying Iranian leaders who warned against further demonstrations. As Anna Corrin reports. Protests in Iran have now entered their seventh week with violent clashes over the weekend as security forces fired tear gas at protesters at university campus right across the country, according to activists and human rights groups. 
On Sunday, large numbers of protesters converged on the grounds of dozens of universities, calling for an end to the regime, as shown in social media videos. A day after the head of the country's feared Revolutionary Guard issued an ultimatum, claiming that Saturday would be the last day of protests, threatening a tougher crackdown. According to state media, the country's hardline president, Ebrahim Raisi, said, quote, security is the red line of the Islamic Republic and we will not allow the enemy to implement in any way its plans to undermine this valuable national asset. Iran has been gripped by protests following the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini in mid-September after she was arrested by the morality police for wearing an improper hijab. Rights groups say hundreds of protesters have been killed and thousands arrested as authorities struggle to contain an outpouring of public anger and demonstrations calling for the regime's overthrow. Well, meanwhile, more than 300 Iranian journalists have issued a statement calling for the release of two of their colleagues, Nalufa Hamadi and Elaha Mohammadi, accused by the Ministry of Intelligence of being CIA spies and the, quote, primary source of news for foreign media, a crime punishable by death after breaking the story of Amini's death. The two female journalists have been held in Tehran's Evan prison since their arrest last month. Anna Corrin, CNN, Hong Kong. Welcome back to First Move. Now, we often talk about markets being spooked, but we mean it in a much more literal sense today. And it probably won't have escaped your notice that today is Halloween. And what better way to celebrate an ancient spiritual tradition than with copious amounts of candy or sweets in my world? Mars Wrigley is the biggest candy maker in the world and says Halloween is like Christmas and the Super Bowl all rolled into one. It's capitalizing on that with a range of spooky products for kids of all ages. And did you know every year that up to 300,000 tons of candy are sold in the United States? And just to give you a sense, that could fill the Titanic six times over. Wowzers. Tim LaBelle is the chief Halloween officer of Mars Wrigley US. No joke. And he joins us now. You're also the president of sales, Tim, let's be clear. But um, I couldn't believe it when my team told me I was speaking to the chief Halloween officer. Is that title officially on your business card, by the way? It is. Happy Halloween, everyone. And it is absolutely on my business card from September through October. Ah, OK, but you do limit it by month. OK, that makes sense. Um, I know that you've sold a lot of candy or sweets, as I mentioned, um, over the last couple of months. Just talk to me about preparation for this Halloween specifically, because we know there have been logistical supply chain challenges. You've been preparing, I believe, for a year for this event. That is correct. First of all, it's a $10.6 billion season. That's costumes, decorations, and confectionery. Confectionery is about $3.2 billion. So it's a big, big business. So we plan with our retailers over a year in advance. And the big reason why, we know 75% of U.S. households will participate in Halloween. And within those 75%, 93% will celebrate with confectionery. So it's a huge season and we're coming off a very big 2021 where we had record sell through. So Halloween trick or treat is officially back. Wow. How much bigger do you think this season will be? Because I think there were still some COVID concerns and and restrictions last year, at least mentally, if nothing else. How much bigger do you think this year will be and from what you've already seen? 
The National Retail Federation is projecting about a 1% increase. I can tell you Mars Wrigley is a little more bullish than that. We prioritize this season. It's such a special season for our associates, our consumers, and our customers. We wanted to make sure Mars Wrigley, as the authority on Halloween, showed up in a big, big way. Yeah, I mean, I've been scouring the shops as well just to get a sense of prices. And you do a whole mix from sort of $3 bags all the way up to, to $35, I think. And you can correct me if I'm wrong based on um, on my shopping. Um, what have you seen in terms of, of consumer behavior? Are they being a little bit more, more careful with what they're spending? And we seem to be endlessly talking about input price inflation. And you guys also surely facing that too. To what extent are you able to pass that on or, or trying to avoid it and perhaps compressing margins slightly to, to do so or not do so? Well, at Mars Wrigley, we believe the consumer is our boss and our boss expects value for money. And that's our commitment. So we look at our end-to-end supply chain and look where we can take costs out of the system and without for one second compromising quality. And that, that's our biggest principle and that's our focus. So we make sure we have price points, as you mentioned, from $3 all the way up to big super variety bags at $35. So every family has an opportunity to celebrate with our treats during our favorite Halloween season. You know, part of the problem and, and the concern that I see around this time of year, it's not all costs of financial waste is huge at this time of year as well. And this is something else that you've tried to tackle, um, trick or trash bags. Explain how this works, because I do think this is a crucial way to think about this time. And perhaps you can tell me if you're going to do it for holiday season too, because this is about tackling sustainability in a, in a smart way. Trick or trash bags. Absolutely. So we partnered this year with smart waste and recycling provider Rubicon. And we created the first time ever a bag uh, where kids and families together can go out, trick or treat, and prepaid postage envelope, send back their wrapper waste. Wrapper waste, our biggest season, wrapper waste is one of our biggest opportunities. Is Mars Wrigley wanted to do more to help our circular economy. So people can put the wrappers in, seal it up, and send it right back. And I'm thrilled Every state in the U.S. purchased some of our bags. Actually, they're free. They ordered some of our bags and we sent them out. We sold out in five hours. So our consumers care about a circular economy. Mars Wrigley cares. So we're glad to partner with Rubicon for this Halloween season. Wow. So they're, they're free to the consumers. States just bought them in and then handed them out. And, and hopefully we'll tackle some of the, the waste produced. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. And we'll learn. We're going to learn a lot this year and we'll look in partner with Rubicon and others to continue to drive efficiency within our supply chain. Yeah. I mean, speaking of that, I know um, you have all sorts of operations to try and improve your carbon footprint. One of the things I read was that M&Ms are now produced entirely from renewable energy. I mean, you can talk to me a little bit more about that. But if people are looking for carbon free candy, then I guess M&Ms are your friend. Um, what's the message from, from Mars Wrigley about your ambitions, particularly as we head towards uh, COP27? Yeah, we announced our sustainable in a generation plan, and it's a comprehensive plan for Mars Incorporated, how we're trying to contribute to a circular economy. I think the the, the one you mentioned around M&Ms is a perfect example. In Hackettstown, New Jersey, uh, home of M&Ms, uh, we have a solar garden that helps us uh, 
re-energize and, and contribute to that circular economy that you described. Yeah, I mean, this is really good. I've got one more question as well. How many parents admit to um, stealing their children's sweets and candy? Do you have any statistics uh, on that? <laughs> as a parent of two, I'm guilty as charged. Uh, and I'm <laughs> sure I'm not alone in, in doing that. I also like getting the entire bag, spread it out and break it down by manufacturer and do my own neighborhood analysis, which is always a lot oh, of wow. fun. <laughs> I think it's a parental service, quite frankly, because the dentist <laughs> bills, after all, those sweets as well are high. What do your children think of their dad being a chief Halloween officer, by the way? That, that's a pretty cool bring your dad into um, school conversation. Yeah, this title is finally yeah. a title that my children understand actually what dad does. So uh, it's <laughs> yeah. been a, an unlocker for me at home. Your cool factor definitely went up um, with that one. Final quick question, and you may not have the answer, but I just have to go back to that point about six Titanics worth of, of sweets or candy being eaten in the United States. Do you have any just off the top of your head comparison to, to anywhere else in the world? Does America consume more candy than anywhere else in the world on a, on a per capita basis, obviously? Um, or, or do you not know, Tim? I'm just trying to... Um, well, Mark's Ridley, you know, as you know, is a, a global company, yes. and we major, major markets. I know uh, our China market, Asia, Europe markets, and the U.S., those are our big three markets. U.S. is certainly our largest confectionery market in the world. Okay. Candy consumers like crazy. Tim, great to chat to you. Thank you so much for Thank joining you. us. Happy Halloween. Okay. You too. Okay. It may be spooky season, but the rock still rules at the box office. Dwayne Johnson's Black Adam holding on to the top spot for a second weekend with a $28 million take. The superhero film was down nearly 60%, in fact, from its debut weekend, but still held off a star-studded rom-com and three horror flicks. And finally, to a billion and maybe beyond. That's what the U.S. Powerball jackpot is estimated to have grown to after no tickets matched all the winning numbers in Saturday's draw. It's only the second time the jackpot has reached a billion dollars. The next draw is tonight. If you have a ticket, good luck. You'll need it. The odds of winning are a daunting one in 292 million. Wow, those are uh, long odds, however. Someone has to win. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next, and I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep Next Level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.